Amen. Amen. Awesome. So as you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, uh, we're going to pick it up here in verse 26, actually, because this is where we left off um, last week. And so if you just, just in case uh, you don't remember what, what the events last week, we see that Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. Um, Judas betrayed him with the kiss of a friend, right, while they were there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that Jesus was taken, uh, he was taken before four trials that night. He was taken one, uh, he faced the Sanhedrin, he faced a religious trial. Then he was taken before uh, Pilate, and then Pilate didn't want anything to do with him, so he sent him to Herod. Then Herod found no fault in him, he didn't want anything to do with him, so he sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate is the one who condemned him to crucifixion, but not before a, a Roman scourging, which is pretty much uh, somebody getting beaten almost to a bloody pulp, and, well, to a bloody pulp and almost to death before he's going to be crucified. And so we're going to be reading about the events surrounding now the crucifixion. And so picking up in verse 26, uh, says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And verse 27 says, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, uh, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Uh, then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in green wood, then what will be done uh, in the dry? And we'll stop right there. And so... We, we see that again that Jesus, after he was beaten, uh, he was a, a scourge according to Roman tradition, right? Uh, we see that now he was being led uh, to the place where he was going to die on a cross. And so typically when, when, when the Romans led someone to crucifixion, uh, typically there were four Roman so soldiers that were escorting this uh, criminal. So you would imagine uh, two ahead of Jesus and two behind Jesus as Jesus is carrying his own cross. It was typical of the Romans to when they would crucify somebody, a criminal, uh, they would make him carry his own cross. Up to the place of crucifixion. So you can imagine Jesus already has been beaten to a bloody pulp. Uh, I believe it's the Gospel of Matthew that says that he was uh, unrecognizable in his countenance. And so being weak, being up all night because he was taken to those four trials. Now he's carrying his own cross to his place of, of crucifixion. You can imagine he's weak, he's bloody, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's just, he's hurting. And he's carrying his cross. He's got two Roman soldiers in the front, two in the back. And so we see that. Uh, uh, also, when they would carry them, they would uh, when they would uh, uh, lead a, a prisoner to his place of crucifixion. They would write out on a on a on a plaque, right? Typically, a piece of wood. The the criminal's uh, conviction, what he was uh, convicted of, right? So that as as they're walking him through the whole city, they would typically take the long route, and everybody would be able to see this criminal who's carrying his cross, who's about to be sentenced to death. And they would know what it is that, he, that he's on trial for, what it is that he's being uh, uh, pretty much given the death penalty for. And so, interesting that the sign for Jesus, because he wasn't a criminal, because he was innocent, the only accusation that was brought against him was that uh, he is the king of the Jews, right? And so, Jesus was walking around carrying his cross, and the Roman soldiers were going before him with the sign that says, uh, Behold, this is the king of the Jews, right? Tragic. And so, also when they came to the place of crucifixion, uh, this, this sign that was carried was nailed to the top of the cross so that everyone who was passing by would be able to look at these criminals and know what they were uh, crucified for, right? And so this, this sign was, was, was nailed on top. And um, I think uh, sometimes like in the movies, we, we, we see the place of crucifixion as 
this far distant mountain, right, where they're being crucified. But have you ever been to Israel, which uh, I went in 2017, we see that when someone was crucified, it was always done in public. It was a form of just public shaming. It was always done by a main road. So as the travelers were, were walking by, they could see this person who was being crucified and they could uh, maybe curse him out, throw rocks at him. You know, uh, it, it was a display of, of just uh, shame, right? And, and humility. Right? So this person would just, uh, 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 just shameful before all the people, right? They were on a main road. And so with their sign there, everybody would be able to walk by and see, ah, look at this guy, man. He did this, he did that, right? And just say some words if they wanted to. And so really, we see that again, Jesus has been up all night. He's been kept awake all night, taken before those, those uh, Roman courts. He's been beaten severely. And we see that he's too weak to carry his own cross uh, to the place where they would nail him. And so we're told that as the Roman soldiers were, were escorting him, we're told that they found uh, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, which Cyrene is a country which is in North Africa. It's uh, modern-day Libya, uh, interesting enough. And we're told that they, as they're on the road, they, they call this guy Simon. They tell him, hey, you carry this guy's cross, right? Simon was just a bystander. Um, and so we see that this Roman soldier put the burden on Simon to carry this, this cross of Jesus. Now, no doubt Simon was just visiting Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a pilgrim um, for the Passover, right? Keep in mind that Jesus was crucified on Passover, and it was typical on Passover, that all the Jews, no matter no matter where they were, they would uh, they would journey out to uh, Jerusalem so they could keep the Passover feast in Jerusalem, so they could sacrifice at Jerusalem. So there were probably millions of Jews in Jerusalem at this time. Right? So Jesus was in. It just didn't happen like in some obscure, right, secret time and place. Uh, there would have been thousands, if not millions, of people who actually witnessed him carrying his cross and be crucified. Right? It was out in the open, and so Simon. Notice it says that he's from Cyrene, uh, which is actually some like 800 miles from Jerusalem. So he did the pilgrimage from Cyrene to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. And he's there just standing by, kind of just watching what's going on. Right. All of a sudden, hey, you carry this man's cross. Right. So you could just imagine. I mean, again, he's just this bystander, innocent bystander. He's there to keep the feast. And uh, he knew probably little, if anything, about this Jesus, right? He's not from Jerusalem. He hasn't been aware of what's going on. He probably had never even seen Jesus before. And so he's there. He probably had no desire to be associated with this man who was condemned to die, right? He's saying, why am I going to carry this criminal's cross? Right? He didn't want to associate himself with this criminal. And all of a sudden, they told him, all right, you carry his cross, right? It was meant to be a shameful thing. He probably wanted to be as far as as far away from from jesus at this point because all he saw when he saw jesus he didn't see jesus for uh the miracles he had performed the words he had spoken uh the teachings he had taught right the confessions he had made throughout those three and a half years but he just saw another criminal that was being sentenced to death right and so as he saw him right it was a shameful thing now here he is in jerusalem right uh he's just desiring to keep the passover and he's desiring to remember what god had done to their for for their forefathers that's what the Passover is. The Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 13 when the angel of death uh, passed through Egypt while the nation of Israel was still enslaved in Egypt. And we're told that, uh, that as the angel of death passed by, uh, if there was the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the doors of the houses, then the angel of death would pass by. And so that was the first ever Passover, Exodus 13. After that, they were commanded by God to, to keep the Passover every single year, this feast of Passover, which would be a remembrance of what God did for them in Egypt. 
And so here's Simon the Cyrene. Uh, he's just an honest, you know, uh, uh, a traditional Jew. He's there desiring to keep the Passover. And uh, now all of a sudden he has to carry Jesus' cross, right? This instrument of death, right? And so it's interesting that as he's there celebrating uh, death passing from the nation of Israel, there in Exodus 13, now he has to carry this instrument of death of Jesus. Now, this Simon is an interesting character because we know that nothing is coincidence uh, with God, right? There's no such thing as a coincidence when it comes to God. We know that God just uh, divinely ordains uh, the events of, of our world, right? Of our life, of our everyday life. Uh, you run into somebody that, you know, you just have an awesome conversation with or God does something and just know it's not a coincidence, right? God is so uh, involved. He is so uh, interested in our, in our everyday lives. And so it could have been any other person who was called upon to carry Jesus' cross. But it was a Simon of Cyrene. And so we actually have reason to believe that Simon came to know what it really means to take up one's cross and follow Jesus. Meaning that uh, he became a believer, actually, after this point. Right? And I say that, um, and I back it up with Scripture. Because in Mark 15, 21, Mark tells us, uh, speaking about the same incident, Mark puts it this way, he says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, keep in mind that Mark was not a disciple. Uh, he was not one of the 12. Uh, he was actually the cousin of Barnabas. It tells us that in Colossians 4.10. And uh, he was actually a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And so Mark compiled his gospel account by interviewing all the first eyewitnesses, right? He talked to the disciples. He talked to Mary. He talked to, to, to everybody who was there on the scene, right? And so Mark wrote his gospel based on a, a firsthand eyewitness account. He wasn't there specifically, right? He wasn't there himself. But yet Mark, as he's writing this account about Jesus carrying his cross and Jesus going to Calvary, Mark mentioned Simon, a Cyrenian. He says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, meaning that, that Mark makes this connection as he's writing the gospel. He makes this connection uh, that Simon is the father of uh, some of their buddies, Alexander and Rufus, meaning that, that Mark knew uh, Simon's kids, um, Alexander and Rufus. And then even the Apostle Paul later on, as he's writing to the church at Rome, he writes this in Romans 16, 13, 13. He says, Greet Rufus, remember that same name, chosen the Lord and his mother and mine. So it's extremely, extremely probable that the Simon the Cyrene, right? Mark knows his kids as he's writing. He says, Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then Paul uh, greets Rufus, right? In his letter to, to the Romans. And then knowing that Mark... And Paul hung out a lot, right? He was a traveling companion. It's extremely probable that after this incident that, um, that, that, that happened with, with Simon and Jesus, that after that he became a believer, right? And he actually uh, taught his kids, taught his family uh, the ways of the Lord, right? And this is awesome because this is just one example of the impact the father can have um, on his family, right? If he comes to the Lord, right? This isn't meant to be a Father's Day message, but man, this, this is an, just an awesome example of just one man, Simon the Cyrene, a godly man, there in Jerusalem, desiring to keep the Passover. He's called upon to carry the cross of this criminal. Little did he know that he was a son of God, right? I'm sure he saw all the events that happened afterwards, right? As thousands of people saw it. And uh, next thing you know, we have Mark writing about him and mentioning his kids. And then Paul the Apostle writing, writing about one of his kids, right? Again, man, just this little domino effect, this righteous domino effect that, that, that is had. I reckon when one man, specifically a father, comes to the Lord, right? And he leads his family to the Lord. Amazing. And so we see that 
uh, as the people are mourning for Jesus, uh, Jesus prophesies over them, right? What do you tell them? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and, and the hills cover us. Right? And so Jesus, as the, as the people are mourning for him, as the people are weeping for him, uh, he begins to say, hey, look, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And really he begins to prophesy of a coming destruction that's going to uh, fall upon Jerusalem. Now, interesting that uh, this, this destruction came in 70 AD. And uh, the Jewish historian, first century historian, Josephus, he tells us that over 1 million Jews were killed and 96,000 uh, were carried back to Rome to be slaves uh, for the rest of their lives. In 70 AD, when the Roman uh, general Titus went into Jerusalem, he besieged the city, destroyed everything, destroyed that temple, right, and uh, eventually conquered Jerusalem. Right? And so Jesus, as the people are mourning for him, he says, hey, don't, don't mourn for me, you know, but mourn for yourselves because of this coming destruction that's going to fall upon Jerusalem. And so going on in verse 32, it says, And there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And so we see that according to Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus makes the statement, uh, Father, sorry, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. Notice what it says in verse 34. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? And so as Jesus is being led to the place, uh, Calvary, where he's going to be crucified, we're told that there was two other guys who were uh, given the death sentence, right? That's what crucifixion was in the first century. It was equivalent to the death penalty, whether it's uh, death by lethal injection, death by electric chair, which I don't think they do that anymore, right? Death by w whatever uh, means, you know, they, they, they do now. That's what it was. Crucifixion was the death penalty. And so Jesus was carried uh, to Calvary, right? He was led to Calvary because he had gotten the death penalty along with two other guys that day, right? Now, there was a specific place outside near the city walls of Jerusalem where the people were crucified. And this place is called, Luke tells us it's called Calvary, right? This is where Jesus died for our sins and our salvation was accomplished. That word Calvary in the Greek is a word, cranion, uh, which means the place of a skull. And in, in Aramaic, it's uh, uh, Golgotha, right? Which means, again, the place of the skull. And it's the place where criminals were crucified, at the place of the skull, at the hill of the skulls, right? And so at this place, they would lay the crossbeam on the post on the ground and attach the crossbeam to the post. And then they would drive uh, a spikes into the hands or the wrist of the, of the prisoner or, or the criminal. And really, we see that crucifixion was designed to produce this slow and... Uh, Painful. The, it's, it's meant to, to, to display the most, uh, the maximum pain and suffering to, to the criminal who is being crucified. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It was actually invented by the Assyrians, and the Romans perfected it. They were just killing machines. Right? They knew how to torture people. They knew how to make people suffer. Right? And crucifixion was just one of those ways that they perfected. They perfected this killing, torturing machine, and it was uh, the cross. And so we see that. Historically, uh, death from crucifixion could come from many sources, right? A, a criminal wasn't, uh, didn't die because he was crucified uh, on a cross, right? But it was all the effects of that crucifixion that would bring the criminal to, 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 to his death. Uh, one of those things could be uh, just this uh, shock from blood loss. Uh, another one could be just being too exhausted to breathe any longer and dying of just asphyxiation. 
Uh, another one could be dehydration or this stress-induced heart attack or even a, a congestive heart failure uh, leading to this uh, cardiac rupture. And even if the victim denied, didn't die quickly enough, it was the custom of the Romans that if a criminal was just hanging on there, he's still hanging on for dear life, man, he's got a lot of fight in him, and it's been too long, what they would do is that they would break the legs of the criminal so that he can no longer lift himself up to breathe, right? And he would die again of asphyxiation because of his broken legs. So it was, this to say that it was just this tragic, horrific scene. It was a horrific scene, right? And so, uh, I like what somebody said. Um, they would say, uh, I heard somebody say, how bad was crucifixion? Right. Well, know that we get our word excruciating from uh, the Roman word that means out of the cross. Right? We get our English word excruciating. When we say somebody, man, when we say I was in excruciating pain, that means, man, I'm describing this pain which I could not even uh, comprehend. Right? It was excruciating. It's beyond words. It's beyond description. It's beyond, you know, me comprehension. This word excruciating. And that word excruciating comes from the Roman word or the Roman phrase, out of the cross. Right? That's how painful this would have been. Right? We read it and we see it on the TV or the movies, right? And it's just like one event that happened like that. Or, okay, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. But really, it was this painful, uh, just excruciating event that happened to him. And so... I like what one one person said. Uh, They said, uh, consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. Right? Consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. And going on in verse 35, it says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, saying, uh, Come in and offer him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, saying, This is the king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Hey, don't you even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right, man, beautiful uh, portrait of grace that we have here. Now, it's interesting, uh, even on the cross, and what is Jesus doing? And he's ministering. Right? Jesus ministered to the very last second, to his very last breath, Jesus ministered. Right? We have in the Gospel of, of, of Luke, in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, recorded for us seven sayings of Jesus. Right? And somebody asked me one time, well, man, how come Jesus didn't say more while he was on the cross? Right? There were like the last moments that he was on the cross. How come he didn't say more? Right? And I understand that it would have taken pretty much all the strength to even just say one phrase. Because of the position of the, of, of the crucifixion, right? he's uh, nailed on the cross, uh, by his hands he's also nailed on his feet and so the the criminal who was on the cross would have literally had to put all his weight on this one nail that was going through his feet to lift himself up to get a breath of air so he could say something right and so jesus man i see just this a beautiful display of grace that jesus would assure this criminal hey today you'll be with me in paradise he would have took all his strength to just take a breath and say today you'll be with me in paradise right man amazing 
And so I see that Jesus, man, even at to his very last breath, what's he doing on the cross, man? He's ministering. And he's ministering, he's ministering to this criminal right beside him. He's unable to touch the blind eyes. He's unable to heal the sick, but he can still pray, right? And he prays for them. One, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he prays for this guy. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this word paradise is a, is a word that was used for, for uh, the garden of the king. Right? When you have this emperor or this king, uh, you would use that word paradise to describe his garden. And uh, it, was, it was where he would invite his special guests to come and walk with them. Hey, come with me and, and let's take a walk in paradise. And he was referring to this beautiful garden that he had. Right? And so Jesus tells this guy, hey, today you will be with me in paradise, in the king's garden. Right? And when I think of that, um, I think of the Garden of Eden. Right? Where, where, where God had this complete and total in uh, uninterrupted fellowship with mankind, just and the garden of the king, and just this un- uninterrupted fellowship, right? Sin hadn't come on the scene yet. It was just God and man one on one, right? And, and really, that's what paradise is all about. That's what heaven is all about: fellowship with God. There are those who teach that um, that paradise is a, is a different place from heaven, right? And, and if Jesus wanted to, he would have said, "Oh, well, today you'll be with me in heaven." Right? And they make this whole doctrine out of one little saying of Jesus or this one word paradise. And they say, oh, well, there's some people go to heaven, some people go to paradise, and only the select few go to paradise. And believe that, no, it's not what Jesus is saying, but what he's saying is, look, you're going to be with me. You're going to have fellowship with me today. Right? After death, you're going to have this uninterrupted fellowship with me. You're going to walk with me in the garden of the king. Now, it's important to note just on another, another topic. It's important to note that uh, some of the other gospels, now, and I say this because someone's going to bring it up and say, hey, well, there's an error in the Bible, right? But it's important to note that some of the other Gospels tell us that actually both of the criminals mocked them, right? While Luke only mentions one of them. And so Luke mentions that, that one of the criminals was blaspheming him and mocking him. And the other one stood up and said, uh, stood up for him and said, hey, man, shut up. <laughs> we deserve this. He doesn't, right? Don't you even fear God? But Matthew and Mark tell us that it was actually both of the criminals that uh, were mocking and blaspheming Jesus. Right. So is this a contradiction in the Bible? Is this an error in the Bible? Right. What do you guys think? Yes. <laughs> the Bible is inerrant, which means it is without error. When you hear that word inerrant, it means that it was it, it is perfect. It is uh, without error. Right. It, it has to be perfect in order to be the, the, the perfect word of God because God is a perfect God. And so his word has to be perfect. It has to be without error because God does not lie. And so Matthew 27, 44 says... Even the robbers who were crucified with them reviled him with the same thing. So notice that Matthew mentions uh, uh, robbers, plural. It says even the robbers who were with them, who were crucified with them, reviled him with the same thing. And then Mark would say in Mark fifteen thirty two, he says, "Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe." For even those who were crucified with them reviled him. Right. So both Mark and Matthew. Mentioned to us that it was both of the criminals that were with them who were blaspheming Jesus and reviling Jesus, right? And so the answer is this. Now, though at first, maybe they, though at first they both mocked Jesus, uh, probably in the hours spent on the cross while they were just all three of them waiting to die, uh, one of the criminals came to see things differently. So originally they were all three crucified, right? And both of them are mocking Jesus. And as time transpired, one of them had a change of heart. And one of them came to realize, you know, this, this man is different from any other man who have ever been crucified. 
Right? One of the criminals came to see things differently and to actually put his trust in Jesus. And so with that being said, right, knowing that these guys, these, both of these guys have been mocking him all, you know, the whole, the whole time they were on, on the cross. And then Jesus says to him, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. You could just imagine that one criminal's roller coaster of emotions after hours of mocking Jesus saying, hey, if you're the Christ, why don't you save us? Save yourself. Get us down from here. You said all these things. After hours of mocking Jesus, okay, you could imagine the roller coaster emotions that are going through his heart, hearing Jesus say, "Hey, today you're gonna be with me in paradise." Man, what a display of grace! What a display of grace! And even in his last hours, those who were mocking him, those who were reviling him, those who were blaspheming him, the guy will have a change of heart, and Jesus says, "Hey, don't worry, it's all forgiven. Today you're gonna be with me in paradise." It's amazing. All right? Wow. Verse 44 says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. And verse 47 says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, and they beat their chest or their breasts and, and, and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And so we see that uh, we're told that it was a sixth hour. Now the sixth hour is around noon because the Jewish day begins at six in the morning. So six in the morning uh, at the sixth hour would be 12 o'clock. And so that means that the ninth hour would be around three o'clock, right? And so we're told that it was uh, the sixth hour and then at the ninth hour, right? All this happened. Now interesting that this uh, Roman historian by the name of Phlegon, right? Not a Christian, just a uh, secular Roman historian actually writes and he writes about this incident and he says that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is they're, they're going again uh, uh, according to the Julian calendar, he says in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. And at the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were, were seen and there was an earthquake. And that's amazing, right? That, again, this is uh, uh, extra biblical information. This, this Roman historian writing about this incident that at that time, at the sixth hour at noon, everything just became dark. It was an extraordinary uh, eclipse where everything just became dark, right? This isn't someone else from the Bible writing. It's not one of the disciples, not another Christian, but a, a, a Roman historian, right? So it's interesting to see, again, that as Jesus uh, was being crucified, right, as he cried out and he says, God, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last breath. Again, we see that even uh, nature refused to look at this horrible sight. It's like everything just went dark. Right? Even nature refused to see this horrible sight. Right? Creation. It's like, it's like creation would have closed their eyes to it. Right? And we see a creator being crucified. Man, the creator of the whole earth being crucified. And then we were told that there was a great earthquake. And that the rocks were torn. And the sun darkened. Now, interesting because in the, in the Old Testament law, uh, it states that if a man rejected God, that the land would rebel against man and drive him out of the land of promise. Right? We read about it in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. And here we see nature literally just revolting against man for this uh, horrible crime. 
And we're told that even the centurion, so a centurion is a, is a Roman official who is over 100. Centi is a, is a 100. And so this Roman centurion, when he saw this, man, we're told that even he glorified God, saying certainly this was a righteous man. Right. And then we're told also that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Notice that. The veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Uh, it's actually, I think uh, it's Matthew that tells us it was from top to bottom. Right. And so this is interesting because this veil uh, that was described there in the temple it is a veil. Literally, it's a thick curtain. It would have been like, I forgot how many feet thick, but it's this thick curtain uh, which separated the Holy of Holies where they considered God's presence to dwell and the place where the common people came to worship God. Right. And in between there was this thick veil, this thick curtain. It was almost like a, like a, like a, a cloth wall. Right. And we're told at the moment that Jesus died that this veil was torn. Matthew tells us it was torn from top to bottom, right? And really this, this veil is signified how God was unapproachable, right? Visually, it's, it's the symbol where like, hey, you know what? There needs to be the separation between us and God because God is so holy and man is so uh, sinful. Man is so unrighteous, mankind. And so this veil signified how God was just unapproachable, that no man dared to even enter the veil unless he was ceremonially clean. And it was only once a, once a year. And so... Uh, and he had to be prepared because if he wasn't, then uh, God would pretty much strike him down and he would die, right? It was, only, it was a custom for only one priest to go once a year after the ceremonial cleansing to go into the Holy of Holies. You're going to see them? The, the Levites? It had to be a Levite, uh, specifically the high priest of the Levites. And so he was the only one that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil, but it was only once a year. It was only on the Day of Atonement, and it was only after he was uh, first ceremonially uh, uh, cleansed. Right, and, and washed. And he had to make sure that he was like before God, that he was blameless. Because if he wasn't, then he would go in there and uh, as he was performing, the, 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 as he was worshiping God, he would, he would die. Right? So it was a custom of them to, to put these little bells on him so you could hear the, the, the priest go in there and he's doing his thing. And they would know when they, when they don't hear the bells anymore, they know, oh, something, something happened. <laughs> this guy was unrighteous, right? I don't know if you guys ever heard, but uh, some people teach that um, they would tie a rope. To, to, to the feet of the priest and he would go in there and when they didn't hear the bells anymore, they would pull him out. That's actually not in the Bible. Um, people teach it, but, but it's actually not even in the Bible. Uh, it is in a Jewish writing known as the Talmud, right? which is pretty much the customs of the, of the Jews. But uh, and, and I'm not sure, um, like I said, the Bible doesn't, doesn't mention it, but the Bible does mention the bells. That the priest will go in there, he will have these little pomegranate bells and uh, they were just, uh, as they were ministering, you could hear the bells, ding, 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 clattering. And if you don't hear it, you know, um, and the guy was, he wasn't righteous, right? He was, he, he didn't repent for something. And so interesting that again, as a, it was separated by this veil, right? This thick curtain. And when Jesus died, we're told that this veil was torn, right? And when the veil was torn, really, it was like an open invitation for all mankind to come, right? To come to God and to have fellowship with God. This veil that for years signified the separation between holy God and sinful mankind. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, it was torn. Meaning, all right, the presence of God is open to everybody, right? Not just a select few, not just one man once a year, the high priest. But now the presence of God is approachable. And you think, how can a holy God, you know, be in the presence of a sinful man? Right? Well, again, it's through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Someone said something really interesting one time that I, they said, notice how the veil was torn from top to bottom and not from bottom to top, signifying that it was God doing the work from the very top to the bottom, not man working his way up. It was God working his way down to mankind, not man working his way up to God, right? And that's what biblical Christianity is all about, 
Religion is do, 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 and eventually you'll attain. And biblical Christianity is, and I say biblical Christianity because there's a lot of, um, you know, forms of Christianity that are not biblical that teach contrary to the Bible. But biblical Christianity is, hey, God has already done, right? God did all the work. God turned the bill, right? God sent his son to die on the cross for us. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, now the Bible says that to whoever believes, all right, on what, Jesus, on what Jesus did on the cross. If whoever believes that Jesus took your place on the cross, now the righteousness of Christ is imparted to you. And now God sees you not for sinful uh, man, not for sinful woman, but for the righteousness of Christ. Right? And so we have access, free access to the throne of grace of God right? with boldness. And so we're told that again, as his veil was torn, open invitation. And then Jesus cried out, saying, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us, but uh, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus also cried out, uh, saying, it is finished. Right? In the Greek, tetelestai. I mean, it is finished. It is done. And then he died. Right? What was done? That was the last thing of Jesus is, it is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. What was done? The payment for sinful humanity was paid on the cross. That's it. It is finished. Right? The effort of man trying to, to make, be made righteous by God, hey, that's done with. Right? People being separated from God because they're saying, hey, it's finished, it's done. Right? The work is done. The payment uh, on the cross was paid. It is finished. Right? Interesting that even though Jesus said it is finished, still, sometimes man, mankind, you know, men and women, we try to add to Jesus' finished work on the cross by doing works. Saying, all right, I know Jesus died on the cross for me, but... If I act good enough, right? If I abstain from saying enough bad words or if I give enough to the church, then maybe I could... And really, it was done, right? When Jesus says it is finished, that means that it's completely finished. There's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Christ on the cross, right? There's nothing that we can do to add to the righteousness of Christ on the cross. Why? Because when he died, it was done, completed, right? Going on in verse 50, it says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. And he had not consented to their decision and their deed. And he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. We're told he was a righteous man, this man Joseph. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in linen. And he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. So an, uh, an unused tomb. And that day was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with them from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And so we're told that, that Joseph was a member of, um, of the council. Really, when it talks about that council, it's referring to the council of the Sanhedrin. And so Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, and yet he did not agree with the action that they took against Jesus. Right? So interesting that you know we read about all these religious uh, Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the Council of the San, uh, Sanhedrin, which would have been made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and we think, oh, they're all the bad guys. But really we see that there were some who did believe. Right? We have another example in John chapter 3 of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and, and he came to Jesus at night. Right, someone penned it. Nick, Nick at night. <laughs> said, uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and he, when he spoke to Jesus, he says, "We know that you are a teacher sent from God." But use that word, "we," meaning that him and there are others, you know, who believe that he was sent from God. And so, not all the Pharisees 
um, hated Jesus, right? Some of them did believe, but for fear of the rest of the council members, they never spoke out, right? So uh, Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. And so Jesus, I mean, Joseph says, uh, he, uh, it says that Joseph did not agree with the action that the rest of the council took against Jesus, but he was probably outnumbered. And so we see the Sanhedrin did not act uh, unanimously, right? And which was contrary to their law. I mean, before they could make any decision according to their own Jewish laws, the whole council had to be in agreement. Meaning that when Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, he was brought before the religious council. They all had to agree unanimously. All right, he's a sinful man. We got we, we to gotta execute him. We got to deal with him, right? And so meaning that even they acted against their own law. One, by having a, a trial at night, it, that was already against, against their own law because it had to be a public trial in the daytime. And then also we see here that not all the council members agreed unanimously. And so we see that the Sanhedrin didn't act unanimously when they passed this order to uh, crucify Jesus. Right? And Joseph was one of the ones that spoke out. And so uh, Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea wasn't alone. Right, that there were others who, who followed Jesus, but they were in the minority. So um, no doubt uh, Nicodemus was also there. I believe it's the Gospel of Matthew that mentions that Nicodemus was with Joseph when they came to ask for, uh, for the body of Jesus, right? And then, God bless you. And uh, we see that when Joseph asked for the body of Jesus, man, his faith is now in the open and everybody knows it, right? It's like, that's it, like no more hiding. Right? I love this because uh, God is so gracious with us. Right, that for three and a half years, this guy Joseph, we don't read about him in any of the Gospels. We don't read of Joseph ever speaking out, saying anything. We read about Nicodemus, but even he comes in secret. But we don't ever read about Joseph's belief and faith in Christ until the moment, the moment where after Jesus was crucified. Right? But it was this moment, seeing, his, seeing Jesus crucified, that made him just say, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to go and I'm going to openly ask for the body of Jesus to Pilate. He says, I'm going to take his body down, right? This would have been in the presence of all the people who were there at Jerusalem to observe the feast, the feast of Passover. So in the presence of all the people, it's like he's saying, you know what? I don't care anymore. He goes over to ask for the body with the help of uh, the women and, and, uh, and Nicodemus. They're taking down the body of Jesus from the cross, right? They're carrying him into the tomb. They're wrapping him up. Right? So it's like he says, I don't, I don't care anymore, right? So now his faith, this Joseph who was like an undercover believer for three and a half years or for however long it was, all of a sudden, his faith is out in the open, right? And I love this, right? Because nowhere does the Bible condemn him for this. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who, you know, are Christians in secret, right? It's like, what's that? It's like this cliche saying, but it's pretty true. It says, uh, if, if being a Christian was illegal, would, it be, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right? Because there is a lot of undercover Christians and who are believers. They love the Lord, but yet no one from the outside world would ever know it unless, you know, you say it. Verbally, right? And that was Joseph. But, uh, and, his, and at this moment, you know, his faith was out in the open and everybody knew it. Now, interesting that John's gospel tells us again that Nicodemus joined Joseph and burying Jesus. And so I like how, 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 how it says that because, again, Nicodemus was another, other, another one of the ones that was like kind of in secret, right? But now all of a sudden, uh, Joseph comes out and Nicodemus says, hey, me too. It's, good, like, it's like it kind of inspired him, you know, to just be open about his faith. And I love that because uh, it's an encouragement to me. It's a an encouragement to us to be open about our faith, right? Because you don't know who you're going to encourage, who you're going to inspire to be open about their faith also, right? At work, I mean, man, I'm, I'm open about my faith everywhere I go. But it's cool how it's like all of a sudden you're open about your faith and you find out, hey, there's other believers, 
right? They might not be where you're at in their walks, but you know, but they believe in the Lord. And, and seeing one person stand up for righteousness, seeing one person stand up for their faith, seeing one person seeing that their faith is important and significant enough to uh, verbalize it or, or make a stand for it, man, it inspires others. Right? So Nicodemus was one who was inspired by the faith of, of Joseph when he took this stand. He said, hey, I'm going to help you. Right now, both of these guys, they're still religious Jews. They're still part of the council. And all of a sudden, man, everybody knows that they're Christians. I love it. And uh, we're told also that the little group of loyal women who took care of the Lord when he was alive, right, who ministered to him, that they also helped to prepare his body for burial. Right? Uh, one of the other gospels would tell us that all the other disciples forsook him except for uh, John. The beloved, he was the only one that was there. And I love this because in this first century, uh, to give any importance, not even just in the Jewish culture, but just in the first century culture period, right? To give any importance to a woman would be kind of like a, uh, like a taboo type of thing. And yet the Bible mentions for us that it wasn't these, you know, 12 rough and rugged disciples who were right there by Jesus' side until the very last second. But Jesus would say, hey, my hour all forsook me, right? And really it was just one disciple, Jesus, uh, John, and the rest were women. And the rest were women who didn't care what anybody said. They didn't care how anybody looked at them. They were there and they were just uh, holding down the ground, right? They're holding down the fort and they were helping to prepare Jesus' body, right? I love this. I love this. And it goes on to say in chapter 24 now, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, Right, because it was Passover, so they had to wait a day before they could do any more work. And so on the very next day, the very first day of the week, that Sunday, they brought these spices so they could finish the burial process. And verse 2 says, uh, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And verse 8 says, And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. So notice, uh, again, uh, I love this because contrary to the cultural norms of the day, uh, it, is, it is by the witness of these women, right, that, that all of a sudden the news spreads, that, hey, the Lord's not there. He's risen, right? This message came to a, a group of women, right? Which again, contrary to the norm of the day, the cultural societal norms of the day where a woman's perspective isn't really being really valued. Yet we see that the Lord would, sh would choose to, to, to uh, uh, reveal this truth to not even the disciples, right? But to this group of women, right? I love this. I love this. And so we're told that these women go back to the 12. They say, hey, we, we went to the tomb. We were greeted by two angels. They told us, you know, why are you seeking the dead among the living? He's not here. He's risen. Right. And we checked and it's true. They came back and they tell the disciples all this. And we're told that none of them believe except Peter. Notice Peter. Man, he was the first one to believe the women. Right? He was the first one to believe. His faith was strong. Right. He believed Jesus. But uh, he just lacked courage. 
I remember a couple of chapters ago, we're told that um, while they were in the garden, he told Jesus, Jesus, I'll never deny you. All these other guys might deny you, but I'll never deny you. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. And what did Jesus say? Peter, you don't even know. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And what did Peter say? Lord, I'll never deny you. And that time came when the, when the, when the Roman soldiers came and they took Jesus from the garden. I was told that Peter was following at a distance. Right? That was, that's where it all started. He began to follow at a distance. All of a sudden, he wasn't close anymore. First, he began to follow at a distance. And he, asked, he was asked once, hey, aren't you one of his followers? No, I don't know. That was one. A little compromise, the first compromise. And the second promise, compromise, hey, yeah, you look, you look like one of his disciples. You talk like one of these guys. I don't know. And the third time, by a little serving girl, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? I told you, I don't know the man. And as soon as he denied him the third time, we're told that the rooster crowed and that Jesus, and that Jesus locked eyes with Peter as he denied him for the third time, right? Peter experienced that look of grace on the eyes of the Lord. And Peter, he said, we're told that he left and he wept bitterly. And so Peter, man, he, he was, his faith was strong, right? But he just lacked courage. He believed Jesus. You know, his problem was never his faith. It was his courage, right? But we're told that, again, when he hears the news, he's the first one. We're told that Peter arose and he ran to the tomb, right? Now notice what it says now in verse 13. It says, now behold, uh, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they walked together of all, and, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they, they did not know him. And verse 17 says, And he said to them, as Jesus said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And verse 18 says, The one who, whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? He's like, Hey, are you near around here or what? And have you not known the things which have happened in these past days? And he said to them, What things? And so he said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and, the, and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And verse 21, it says, uh, but, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, speaking about Peter and John, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, oh, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the things that the prophets have spoken. All right. um, verse 26 says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Man. And so we're told that, uh, man, here is, uh, if uh, there's one teaching of Jesus that I would want to hear, it's this one. We're told that, that Jesus, again, he meets with these two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. They're all bummed out. They're talking amongst themselves about what had just happened, right? Their world is just rocked. Their world has been shaken. Their world has been rocked. This man who they followed for three and a half years, who they confessed that was mighty in word and in deed, that they, they believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that he was the sent one of God. And they were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So still even to that day, they, 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 they couldn't comprehend everything, the whole ministry of Jesus, 
right? Because Jesus had told them many times, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm not here to, you know, uh, begin to rule in, in Israel at this point, but I'm here to redeem mankind. And yeah, as they're walking, they're reasoning amongst themselves. They're saying, man, how could this have happened? We trusted and we believed them. What do you think is going to happen now? What do we do now? For three and a half years, they left their jobs. They left their uh, families. They left their homes. They left their hometowns. They left everything they knew to follow Jesus for three and a half years. And all of a sudden, he's dead. He's dead. And more than that, uh, the tomb is empty where he was buried. And so they're wondering, man, what's going to happen now? Right? And so Jesus appears to them. We're told that the eyes of their understanding were restrained. Meaning that though he was right there talking with them, they couldn't recognize him. It's, 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 a, it's a miracle, right? It's, it's, um, I don't know how it was. I don't know if Jesus looked different. I don't know if he sounded different. I don't know if they, it was just that they couldn't see him. But we're told that for whatever reason, they couldn't recognize him, right? And so Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And what was the response? Are you new around here? Haven't you heard what, what, what happened in these past few days? Haven't you heard about this, this Jesus whom, uh, whom our rulers condemned to be put to death? Right? And so Jesus, he stoops down to their level once again. Right? And we're told that concerning uh, uh, beginning in all the law and the prophets, he began to teach them all these things uh, concerning himself. Right? He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I love this because this tells us something. It tells us that all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, but specifically from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Right? And so we're told that Jesus takes them, gives them a Bible study, beginning from the book of Genesis. And from begin, beginning from the book of Genesis, he points out every single scripture that was concerning himself. So he goes to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It goes through all the prophets, right? the whole Old Testament. He begins to point out every single scripture that was about him. That's amazing. Wow. I'm guessing uh, this guy Cleopas couldn't, didn't remember the Bible study or else Luke would have, would have mentioned that Bible study here in the Gospel of Luke, but he didn't, right? Because Luke wrote his Gospel based on an eyewitness account as well. He interviewed all the people. So I'm guessing as he interviewed Cleopas and the other uh, disciple, they probably couldn't remember the whole Bible study. It was probably a long Bible study, right? But he just told them, oh, well, he just began beginning from, uh, from, from Moses and all the prophets began to just expound the scriptures to us. Man, imagine that. The very author of the word teaching you the word oh man but you know what's more amazing is that we have the very God of the word dwelling inside of us that is teaching us the word the Bible tells us that as believers when you come to faith in Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit now indwells us right First, First Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God breathed is inspired by God right it's profitable for reproof for correction for doctrine for instruction right and then Jesus would tell us in John 16 that the Holy Spirit, right, before Jesus was crucified, uh, he's preparing the disciples, the believers, us, that before Jesus was crucified, he would tell them of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he said this about the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit, he will uh, teach you all things and he will bring all things to your remembrance, which I said to you. And so these disciples had uh, Christ, right, the, in his glorified body, giving them a Bible study from Genesis to Malachi about himself. And I think that's amazing. But we have the very Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, the very author of the Scriptures dwelling inside of us. More than just uh, a one-time Bible study, man, we have the, the Spirit of truth dwelling inside of us who can teach us the Scriptures, right? 
God has gifted me with the gift of, of teaching, right? So I could be up here and help you guys understand the word. But really, uh, my encouragement to you guys, to all of us, to myself too, because this is what I do. I read the scripture and before I read, I say, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, teach me your word. Give me understanding. Lord, give me discernment. Give me wisdom. Help me to understand your word, right? And he does. He does. Why? Because that's his very uh, uh, ministry. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us, to teach us, and to bring all things to our remembrance. And so... Imagine to hear Jesus start with Moses, right? Genesis and go all through the Old Testament going over the prophecies concerning himself. Amazing, right? Amazing. But we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. Amen? One right there. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for just uh, Lord, this awesome gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside.